the Blood Covenant. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 4. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We trust you again to try, well, to help us get these truths in us that we might comprehend the depth of it. In Jesus' name, I ask you to help us. Amen. Now, uh, again, we just read Ephesians chapter 2 about to be a stranger of the covenant is to be as good as without God and without hope in the world. But on the top of page two, we're talking about now, we're just about to really explain how basically, just to give you a little graphic picture, if I wasn't so lazy, I'd get up and do it on the board, but how two families did it when they came together. Um, underneath the paragraph there that has the uh, uh, scripture on it, I've got here every race that was created by God. Now think about it. Every race that was created by God, for example, is superior to another race in some area. Now that's just the truth. Now I had this taught to me once years ago, and this guy was so funny, I wish I could remember it, but I, I would butcher it. But he was talking about the fact that, you know how, he was making a joke of it, and he was teaching this, as, this one aspect of it. That's why I put it in my notes years ago. He taught this one aspect of it in America, and, and he stereotyped how races are looked upon in America. So over here, people might get offended, but he said, you know, he said, let me tell you, he said, if you got the Mexicans, the Mexicans, he said, you get them to paint everything because they're the best painters. They're, the, they're so artistic. He said, you get the black people to do the music because they're, the they're the best people on earth in music. He said, you get the, you know, like you get the Germans to do this, you get the, or rather the, the white folks to do this and this, that, the, the, Latin, the Latinos to do this and what have you. And he talked about, you know, we'd actually have something that looked right. You know, what are we to get all the different races together? But the fact that he was trying to communicate was just that truth. Every single race if you're honest, is superior to another race. And see, whether we like it or not, the white race is superior to the black race in some areas. But the black race is superior to the white race. The oriental race is superior to the white or blacks in some areas. There's something in their genes, in all of our genes. We are specifically made by God. We are different. And we're not supposed to divide over our differences. We're supposed to understand that we can come together and what can we get when we begin to pull from each other's knowledge? But the problem is we are so proud that we won't allow ourselves to give that race the majority of this strength because we need to be able to do it. But the fact is, it's like, you know, in a marriage, we often talk about if a woman is better with the money than a guy is, and a guy's got too much pride and he won't let her take care of the checkbook and he doesn't even know how to add, but he tries to take care of it and he messes everything up. He's not being manly, he's being dumb <laughs> because she's got more insight. She, you know, you just, if you find, if somebody has a greater anointing, a greater strength in an area, the idea is to yield to that and allow that to just, it's just simple understanding. And I'm just saying, if we would understand, but you know, today, the issue is this, you see, no, 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 we don't want too many white folk, no, 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 we don't want too many black folk, no, 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 we don't want too many Orientals, we don't want too many Indians, we don't want too many Malaysians, we don't want any Chinese, we don't, whatever, but every race, God made them different on purpose. It's just that simple, for a reason. They're all superior, 
in some areas. Covenant is designed to bring these differences together to create the whole. This truth runs throughout the whole earth. And again, I said that even with dogs, when you think about the animal life, look how many different breeds of dogs there are. Now, a Doberman pincher, let me tell, or a Labrador retriever. My son's got a, a brand new lab. It's only about seven months old. Labradors don't know why, Labr you know what Labrador retriever is. Labrador retrievers, they don't know why they want to chase stuff and jump in the water. They just jump in the water. It's part of their nature. It's in them. As soon as he takes his dog out to the park, the first time he saw water, he knew, <laughs> you know, he's a puff. I'm supposed to be in it. And he just jumps for the water. That's what he knows. It's his nature. Doberman pinchers, are, they would not make good hunting dogs. You know, if, if you shoot something and you had a Doberman pincher and you send him out after the rabbit that you shot, you wouldn't get a rabbit back, you'd get a piece of meat back and a piece of bone. Because a Doberman pincher doesn't know about fetch and keep it in a soft mouth like a retriever. It just knows eat, rip, tear. You know what I mean? Well, think about it. I mean, it's, you know, all these dogs, there's something in their nature that makes them what they are. They're designed specifically after a specific purpose. And all we're trying to say is when you really think about this, it's all through nature how, like I put down here, Dobermans, pit bulls, retrievers. You wouldn't use a pit bull as a retriever. God, then you see, he didn't just give us apostles, but he gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And like I put down here, you see, when you see how this all works itself out, there's certain things you're not going to reach with the word of knowledge that you'll have to reach with faith. There's some things that are going to need intercession and so on. And this is why, again, I get so frustrated when you go around and you see all these guys, like I referred to as we finished the last hour. <laughs> you know, you'll find a church, a group of people that really flow in the prophetic, okay? And then you'll find a church that just doesn't know anything about the prophetic whatsoever, but all they've heard about is some of the mistakes that people that have been the prophetic have made. Like this one guy... <laughs> Uh, who's a close friend who considers me his pastor in America. I was just preaching at his church a few weeks ago. And I'm trying to talk to him about the need to have some more prophetic people come into his church. And he said, but Rod, he said, what if these guys are wrong? He said, because I've seen these guys. I know how many people have prophesied over people and it's been wrong, messed their life up. I said, yeah, but what if they're right? And he said, well, yeah, but what if they're wrong? I said, well, what if they're right? I said, listen, I said, some of these people I know, they've got like an 80% track record of accuracy when they prophesy over people's lives. I said, that's, a, that's powerful. He said, yeah, but what about the 20%? I said, what about the 80%? I said, what, you know, and, but the thing is, he's just so freaked out about having anybody come in because he's afraid of what mistakes may happen. And I looked at him, I said, Charles, I've got great news for you. Mistakes will happen. But I said, you are going to limit yourself so drastically if you don't open your arms and learn to embrace these other parts of the body. Then you got people you see that believe in healing. And I mean, you got other churches that they're, you know, and I ain't going to mess with, I ain't going to get around none of them churches believing that laying, hands, laying on a hand stuff. That stuff died with, the, died with the apostolic age. That's all, you know, their cessation. They just will not fellowship. They will not come together. And so there's this massive massive chasm between all these people that are meant to be one. In other words, we all know it, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. It's the oldest weapon Satan's ever had. We divide over our different opinions when we should be celebrating the strengths. And like I said, I think the first night, if you've got 20 years of experience with working with the sick, healing the sick, but you don't know anything about prophecy, and you find somebody else that's got maybe 20 years of experience with really working with the prophetic, hearing the voice of the Lord. 
Well, if you two guys got together, you'd have 40 years of experience in 20 years of time. You know what I mean? You'd be able to gain from there if you'd learn how to yield to them. But this is what it means. You see, it's apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. We have some church, some churches normally, the moment you walk into them, you can tell their entire thrust may be evangelistic. And I mean, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, it's evangelistic, and there's altar calls, and it's evangelistic, and there's altar calls, and it's evangelistic, and there's altar calls. Now, there's nothing wrong about that, but there's nothing altogether right about it either, because what about the rest of the giftings that God has made available? It says in Ephesians clearly that he's given again all those five-fold ministry offices for the perfecting or the maturing of the church. And this is why people have to understand, if you don't have the prophetic in your church, then be humble enough to find somebody who's prophetic and bring them in. If you're prophetic, but you don't have people that are really pastoral or really teachers in the church, bring some teachers in. If you don't have evangelists in the church, bring them in. You know, expose your people to all of these aspects because it's only when you have all the aspects of the church working together that God's ordained that you're going to have the fullness of the expression of what Christ meant. When, and when you teach on leadership about those things, often they speak about the five-fold ministry as a hand, the little finger being the teacher, this being the evangelist, this finger being, again, the prophet, or excuse me, uh, being the pastor because it's the center that everything revolves around, this being the prophet because it points away. But the thumb is always the apostle, and the idea is that's where the strength comes from. The thumb is what holds together and makes it a fist and causes it to be something that has power. And what we've lost, what we've not had in the church for, for decades has been any apostolic input. But thankfully, praise God, in these days right now, that's why God's re, reintroducing, as it were, real apostolic, what it means to have apostolic oversight. There are apostles in the land today that are master, like an Ed Silvosa, I always say, who's a master strategist in the body of Christ that just knows how to bring things together and make them function and build. I mean, just incredible. But back to the thing, the whole idea of covenant is about bringing people together quit dividing because we're different. I mean, I look for people that are different on purpose. I mean, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but this is why I go to conferences where they don't, I mean, they don't believe zip about what I believe. But these boys, I, I subscribe to Leadership Today, which is a manual that comes out every three months from America. These people that write Leadership Today do not believe in the gifts of the Spirit. They do not believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. None of them believe in speaking in tongues. But these guys write some stuff. They've got some insight into some areas that are just incredible. And I've never had one copy of this that I don't learn from, that I don't glean from. And I mean, I just get, a, you know, good information from these people. But if I just sat back on my haunches and they don't even speak, I'm not going to deal with anybody that doesn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, I mean, I would cheat myself from so much insight that these guys have. It's just pride. It's old-fashioned pride is what it is. You know, I'm just going to... And all in the name of being protective. And like I always say, if a pastor does his job right, we're really called to father people when it's all said and done. And if a person really fathers somebody, a father has to let their children go when they reach a certain age. But I've watched it in my own life. God's allowed me the honor of, quote, unquote, being a spiritual father to some people. And I've, I've learned this, that when you do your job, if you love them and they truly sense the love and the connection that's there, and you let them go, and they go places that maybe you know are a little dangerous, but you, f you know that it's right that they go because they have to learn things themselves, just like you did with your kids. But if you've done your job, if they go someplace that's weird, they'll always come back to dad and ask questions. 
And this is what pastors have to learn, that their real job is to father people and to allow them freedom. Don't get so protective that you slip from discipleship into shepherding. I mean, you know, that's the big thing that happened in Britain in particular years ago, uh, where the whole control issue came. And where all in the name of discipleship, you know, they wouldn't let you, you couldn't even buy furniture without the pastor's permission. And they'd even ask you what colors you were buying. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, all in the name of discipleship. You couldn't date without their okay. And see, you can see how, well, see, there's some wisdom in that. There's some people that need help in dating, trust me. <laughs> but the point is, it got to the point where it became control as opposed to guidance. Yeah. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And this is why when you go to church, you need to go to church somewhere where you trust your leadership. If you don't trust them to give guidance, you need to get to someplace where you do. Just that simple. Anyhow. I've got down here this next statement, blood is thicker than water. This is a, I made reference to it, but this is a covenant statement. And like I shared last week, we, we have all these phrases in our lives and we have no idea what we mean. We say blood is thicker than water. And as I said last week, when you use that statement, the first thing you think of is what? It refers to your kinfolk, your relatives. But nobody ever asks himself, but in that phrase, blood is thicker than water. What, why is the word water in that phrase? What's water there for? And of course, it's there because it speaks not about blood kinship between brothers and sisters, because it's a covenant term. It says that blood, if we enter into covenant by blood, there's a closeness that's created that causes us to be nearer to one another than had we shared the water of the same mother's womb. Now, I'll read it to you. I'll just read one short little thing from just all the way back to page 10 in the beginning of this thing where you'll you see that it says, um, it says, there are indeed various evidences that the tie of blood covenanting is reckoned in the East even a closer tie than that of natural descent, that a friend, quote unquote, you see, this is what I mean. Like, we don't even understand what the word friend is. We're going to learn new definitions. The Bible says Jesus, there, he's a, there is a friend that sticks us closer than a brother. See, all that's covenant language because to sit at the table becomes, you become a friend with somebody it's incredible. There are indeed various evidences that the tie of blood covenanting is reckoned in the East even a closer tie than that of natural descent. That a friend by this tie is nearer and is dearer that sticketh closer than a brother by birth. We in the West are accustomed to say that blood is thicker than water. The Arabs have the idea that blood is thicker than milk, than a mother's milk. With them, any two children nourished at the same breast are called quote-unquote, milk brothers or suckling brothers. And the tie between such is very strong. A boy and a girl in this relation cannot marry even though by birth they had no family relationship. Among even the most bigoted of the Druzes, a Druze girl who is a, called a, quote, a sucking sister of a Nazarene boy is allowed a sister's privileges with him. He can see her uncovered face even to the time of her marriage. But the Arabs hold that brothers in the covenant of blood are closer than brothers at a common breast. In other words, closer than two brothers of the same mother. That those who have tasted each other's blood are in a sure covenant than those who have tasted the same milk together. That, quote, blood liquors, unquote, as they're called, as the blood brothers are sometimes called, are more truly, are, are more truly one than milk brothers or sucking brothers, that indeed blood is thicker than milk as well as thicker than water. So that whole phrase there, like I said, about coming together is, an, is a covenant word. Now, point five, when we really get to this now, come, 
because it says come to point terms of agreement. When anybody started or considered entering into covenant, like I said, you read in here, Stanley with these tribes, Nogoyama of this, I can't even pronounce the tribe, Stanley or Livingston with these other people, all this Fred Souther who, who entered into covenant all across Africa. Uh, oh, the guy that, what's the guy's name that worked with the American Indians so much, the missionary, but all these missionaries you read in here. Because covenant is based on differences, they talked about how before peak tribes had come into covenant, there was long, long discussions about what was going to take place because people maybe like, because of the differences that were there. Because covenant is based on differences, there had to be deep prayerful discussion. I put down here, if we'd see this in our churches, we'd stop having so many small churches to have and have about 50, 20,000 member churches. Then, when we, then we would begin to influence our surroundings, I said, as it is now, we waste so much time in the duplication of efforts. Uh, I just put down there as an illustration, I wrote this years ago again, you know, I used to think, what, what would happen if we had one large building with many offices? And the way, I'll tell you the way the Lord ministered this to me one day, you know, right now we're, it's, we're blessed that we have a few churches like Matthews and others where we have, you know, over 10,000 people. But you know, when you think of how many Christians are in this nation, can you actually imagine Whose attention would be drawn? Think of, think of whose attention would be drawn to this event. If every Christian in England, every Christian in England gathered at one time in one place just once a year, I'm talking about a couple of million people gathered together over a large, gigantic area and came together year after year after year. What I'm trying to say, do you understand that like marketing people would be very interested in a, in a few million. What I mean is because where you have that many people, you have power and you have influence and people notice you when you have that much. And again, if you could just see this, you see the moment today you get five pastors together and you talk about coming together as one, the first question is number well, who's going to be the senior pastor? And they miss the whole point of it all immediately. They don't understand. The issue is, God's going to be the senior pastor. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're going to do our best to listen to God. We're going to actually lead from the front and not just be led by the nose. But again, it would be amazing if we ever saw people come to an understanding of what would happen. I mean, what could happen if the church ever came together? I mean, you know, honestly, I know that it's a pipe dream because of everybody's pride, but you see, when God looks, this is why I remember... You've heard this saying, so many other people have said it, when God looks on a city, he doesn't see several churches. God sees one church. I mean, you, you do understand that. He only sees blood-bought, blood-washed people that have believed in his son. He doesn't see Presbyterian. He doesn't see Church of England. He doesn't see Catholic. He doesn't see Pentecostal. He sees those who've been washed by the blood. Heaven sees one church. Heaven doesn't see all that other stuff. When you go to heaven, they're not going to ask you if you were Pentecostal or they're going to ask you if you're Church of England. You're not going to show your membership card to the local Baptist church. That will have nothing to do, carry no weight whatsoever, will it? Will it? No, the issue, there's only going to be one issue. One issue. Have you been washed by the blood? Are you in covenant? Have you come in? Have you undergone circumcision of the heart? Not circumcision of the flesh, circumcision of the heart. 
by entering in through faith. You see, the way we come into this new covenant today is through something called faith. Man, I need a jacket. Children for generations. Children for generations to come are going to be affected by this covenant because once in, there's no way out. Absolute, remember the first statement on the other page, covenants demanded absolute, absolute unwavering loyalty. Unthinkable, inconceivable to break a covenant. Now what took place was the family, point six, a family representative was chosen. If we were a warrior tribe, then what you would do is you would pick a representative, but if you were a warrior tribe, you would pick the baddest dude in the camp. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? The guy that exemplified the toughest, meanest. You would pick the man that was the most valiant, courageous champion because he represents the very, very best of who you are. That's why, again, when you read these covenants in here, or all these stories, you'll read about the chief warriors or the chieftains of the tribes themselves or whatever, the head man. If you were, again, like I said, a tribe that was agriculturally known, you would be the chief who was the top man who understood everything about growing plants and, and vegetables and fruits. You were the guy that knew everything. And what would happen, like I've got down here, is these two men, like I said, if we're known for our financial ability, then our banker. But it, the idea is that we're talking about the best amongst us because he's going to represent everything we are. We're a warrior tribe. We're... We're, we're a, an agricultural tribe, we're whatever, but we pick somebody, all these things, you pick somebody that represented you as the very best. He's our family member. He's somebody we identify with. We have the same blood flowing in our veins. Our father, grandfather, great grandfather, etc., is all in there, all right? Now you turn the page. <laughs> and uh, the covenant site was then chosen. Now. Again, if I, like I said, wasn't so lazy, I'd get up there and draw. Normally, like in the Bible, do you remember Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? One man got up there and spoke all the blessings of the covenant. Another man got on the other one and spoke all the curses of the covenant. And all the people of Israel were in the valley between these two mountains. So if you can just picture up here, two mountaintops and this valley. Up here, and well, of course, and you know, I didn't realize until I went to Israel the first time, you know, when you read about the Valley of Kidron and you read about this mountain, Mount Zion, I'm from, a California, I'm from America, from California. I grew up in the mountains. When I think mountain, I think mountain. But in the book, in the Bible, when they talk about if you've been to Israel, you know what I mean? Mount Zion is to me, it's a hill. Have you ever seen it? Anybody been there? You know, it's a hill. It's just like, to me, it's a small hill. It's not a mountain, but it's like... So what I mean is, don't think about four miles in the air. But the tramp, this, this champ, all, all these, these tribes, they would have, they would get on one side or the other. All the tribes. And if you want to look at it another way, sometimes it would be just the opposite. Sometimes uh, these two family representatives would go up and stand on a mound, stand up high. The issue was that wherever these two were, all of the separate tribes needed to see what was happening, okay? So you've got this like a, if we can put it this way, you've got everybody up on the mountaintops and there's a valley in between you and we'll look at it that way. And everybody's looking down in this valley watching these two men down in this valley, okay? It's a site where both families can see, possibly a valley with hills on either side so all can see. Sometimes covenants were made only between two people as David and Jonathan. We'll look at that later. Point eight, an animal was selected. Usually... 
always a large animal to provide much blood. Now this cut, the covenant cut was different than any other cut. It was cut, it was different than just a regular sacrifice. The sacrifice is where they slit the throat and collected the blood. But in a, blood, in a covenant, when you made a covenant, the animal was cut down the spine, right down the backbone. And what happens like with Abraham, as we'll see in Genesis 15, I'm talking about an entire cow is cut down the backbone until, poof, it, it lays over. An alleyway of blood is created. Now remember I said earlier, it's a picture it's something, the smell, the, the sight, when you cut covenant is to be something that marks you for the rest of your life. You just don't forget it. There's something about blood, isn't there? Isn't it even today when you get blood on you, there's just something about blood. I mean, isn't it? There's just something about blood, you know, that just whatever. But it's usually a large animal to provide much blood. This cut was different than any other, not the same as with the sacrifice. The cut was made down the spine, the backbone. The two halves fell opposite of each other, making an alley or walkway of blood. Point number nine, then they had what was called the walk of blood. Now, again, it can be done differently. Most of the time, this is what happened. The terms, first of all, the terms being agreed to, the ceremony began. But again, this is, well, let me just read. Each man, it's amazing when you watch this, because here's where the Ephesians 6 talks about. Each man would walk back and forth through this alleyway of blood, normally twice. Then they would come and stand in the middle of the blood. And then there would be an exchange of garments, an exchange of weaponry and what have you. Let me just read so I can keep on track. Each man would give his coat to the other representative. Again, you read this book, Blood Covenant. The chieftain often would take his robe and hand it to like Stanley or Stanley then would take something, a jacket, give it to him because your robe, especially in those days, represented who you were. The best way to illustrate it is in the military. A uniform, there's insignias and stuff on a uniform that anybody that's been in the military immediately recognizes rank and they recognize position because it'll tell them if they're in the signal corps, if they're in their artillery or what have you. Those days, the issue was that your, that uniform represented your authority. So what would happen is they would take their jacket off and hand it to the other. And what they were saying is this huge statement, my authority is now yours. And then the other one would do the same and say, my authority is now yours. There'd be this trade because we're coming into covenant. Now, the code stands for who I am, my authority, my position, or what I do with my authorities in the military. Here's my authority, I now have your authority. Then there'd be an exchange of a belt, and the King James is always called a girdle, but it speaks to a belt, because on the belt is where the sword, the dagger, your kit was. It signified your strength. The statement made was, your enemies are now mine, my enemies are now yours. Now again, you gotta get excited about this, because you have to understand, this is what's happening between God and man. In Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the whole armor of God. God this is why, and this is the thing that we're going to wind up getting to. This, this covenant in God's heart, God did it this way, is totally unequal. God's the one that does all the giving. And we're the ones that do all the receiving. It's incredible. That's why angels have their minds blowed. Whatever kind of mind angels have, they had their minds blowed. <laughs> they, you know, they, it said they just couldn't figure out. They couldn't conceive what God had in mind to do this, to come into unity with man. A um, body hast thou prepared me. I mean, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? 
I mean, when I consider the heavens and the moon and the stars and the earth which you have made, what is man that thou considerest him? I mean, this whole thing. Each representative walks through the valley of blood twice from both directions, and then they meet in the middle of the two halves. Like I said, blood is everywhere. I don't know. I grew up in Southern California, not too many miles away from a slaughterhouse. What do they call them over here? Avatar? Something like that. But if you live like in California where it gets 106 degrees in the summertime, when the wind changed, it was not five miles away to smell that blood. Nah. But I mean, if you can imagine uh, physically, put yourself in a picture of seeing a bull split in half and you standing in the middle of it. Whatever that bull ate that day is there. <laughs> blood is everywhere. I mean, everywhere. When you think about the sacrificial system, we just, I don't know what you think, but you know how many lambs were brought daily? I mean, you know how much blood was around that altar? I mean, do you know how many flies were around that altar? I mean, do you, do you why those things had to be cleaned daily? I mean, it was, a, it was something that was ingrained in them every week, every year in particular, but I mean, the stuff, thousands and thousands and thousands of animals are sacrificed all through their histories trying to tell them that it takes blood. It takes blood all preparing them for the one sacrifice that's going to come for the sins of the whole world. I mean, it's incredible. Blood is everywhere. The smell, the sight. Point C, the terms are stated. And then again, the blessings or the promises for keeping the covenant are recited. And then the curse for breaking it is, is, is recited. Like I said, I could read again in the book here where, I mean, once these guys would enter into covenant, like these chieftains, there would be a guy, uh, one of his agents come up and begin to just go in all manner. They, Stanley would say they'd do dances for 30 minutes talking about what would happen to Stanley, to his family, to his cousins, to his aunts, to his uncles, to his children, to his generation, if you ever break this covenant. And they would call down all these curses, call down all these things. May your graves, like I said, be defiled by pigs and all this stuff is written. All these things that would happen if you broke this thing. But on the other side, they'd be constantly telling all of the good that was going to come because now we're becoming one. Whatever I have, you have. Whatever right I have, you have. Whatever strength I have, you have. I mean, it was so strong. Just a strong, strong thing. Like I said, that's what happened with Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. The blessings and the curses were recited. It's a covenant. Each representative swears by God to keep the promise, making God, making God the third party to the actual agreement. The cutting of the flesh. Now, the lifeblood of each family is now shed. You've been taught all your life about blood. The life is in the blood, the life of your family. In other words, if this guy's down here, this witness, this person, your, your blood's in this. Somehow, some way, the blood, you've all come from the same tribe. And that's when, of course, cuts are made. And cuts, normally, they'd do a cut in the arm because the arm is the strength or the cut was done again just in the palm of the hand. And like, you know, you'd see, and you, can, you already know what's going to happen. They would then take hands, clasp hands, and the blood would begin to flow down each other's arms. What, what's happening? You see, blood is touching blood. They're becoming one. They're becoming one. The cuts are normally made on the hand of the arms. Both representatives grip each other's arms or hands so that the cuts are joined and then the arms are held high with blood coming down the arms for all the family to see 
the two families' bloods being mingled to become one. In other words, now go back to the witnesses. All the tribe, all this warrior tribe, all this agricultural tribe, they're all looking down this valley. They're all watching these two, their champions. They're champions walking back and forth, and they're watching and they're listening to all the curses be pronounced. Everything's done. The blood, they're seeing now two peoples becoming one. Well, then you ask yourself again, you see, this is why it all points to the communion table. That bull that was cut, you see, this one man represented your whole tribe, your whole tribe. Please see Jesus. <laughs> he represented all mankind. But this representative, this witness, he represents your whole tribe. You've just watched all this take place. It's a holy, holy, holy thing that happens. They then take this, this bowl and they barbecue it. <laughs> and you come together. Now both families come together. You sit next to each other or apart from each other. And you begin to partake of the bull that was the sacrifice of the covenant. And when you put that meat in your mouth, you are testifying to your agreement to every blessing and every cursing that you just heard recited because now you become one. And when you partake of that, you are testifying that that is now being ingested. It's becoming one with you that I'm in this covenant just like. I didn't physically cut covenant with that man. My hand wasn't cut, but he was my representative. But I'm going to partake of the sacrifice. And now because of partaking of that sacrifice, it's just like I was cut, just like my hand joined his hand. Because now, as surely as those two became one by blood, we are now one. We are one tribe. We are one people. That's what this whole thing is about. So the covenant meal. Families then sat at a meal together to partake of the flesh of the covenant and drink the cup of blessing to all physically partake of the symbol of the covenant that is now forever between these two families. Hallelujah. Forever between these two families. Now let's turn to lesson two then. Let me just introduce this and get over here. But I want you to keep all that picture in your mind then. Let me just look. I'll just start reading from the top. Throughout all history, we find the use of blood and that of covenants made with blood to be looked upon as holy, unbreakable, all-powerful. We will see that our God is a covenant-making God and that the premise of covenant is in the heart of all mankind, whether or not they ever heard the word of God. Covenant blood is understood in the heart of mankind even before it's understood by the mind. We'll look, like I said, at many aspects of covenant to endeavor to receive a better understanding of what is taking place between us and God to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Now, uh, I'm just going to read some of this rather quickly, and then I'm going to read a couple more things from Trumbull's book. But in Leviticus chapter 17, most of you have heard these phrases, but let me at least, for the sake of this, we need to read them. Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 14. This is on the outline from the King James. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. 
And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast, or fowl that he may eat, that he that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. I mean, even the blood of an animal that was spilled out in the field, God said it had to be covered. There was something about the blood, and we'll get to another part where Cain and Abel. Cain slays his brother, and if you remember, and God speaks and says, the blood of your brother cries out from the earth. Even God is saying there's something about that blood that is shed that's still crying because there's life in that blood. This is why it gets really interesting when you think about the people that were murdered in places indeed or places that were martyred and the blood of people that were unjustly killed, how their blood is still on the earth, and somehow, some way, I don't know how to explain it because I can't, but somehow, some way, that blood still has great value to God. And this is why there's something redemptive about people who've given their lives for Christ. And there's something about the land that we can redeem. Anyhow, for it is the life of the flesh, the blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore, I said unto the children of Israel, you shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. Then there's Genesis again, 9, 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, I'm just going to jump ahead here to point B. It's an ancient rite found in all cultures. I've said that several times. And I, I've got Genesis 3.21 here because it says that, you know, when man fell, I want you to see how far back it goes when you think about it. When man fell, the Bible says that the first thing that Adam and Eve recognized was that they were naked. And it says that they went and they hid themselves, for they were ashamed, right? Uh, the first thing that entered was fear. The second thing that came was shame. The first thing that came in the fallen nature of man was fear. That was the very first thing the Bible lists. The second thing was shame, fear and hiding, fear and hiding. But the Bible says in Genesis 3:21, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, where do you think he got those skins? Well, they had to come off an animal. In other words, you see, it's implied. Somehow, the Bible says God did this. I mean, this, you can't, you know, we can't explain it, but the Bible says God made them coats. <laughs> what we're trying to say is, you see, blood had to be shed to get to those skins so that people could be covered. I mean, I'm just saying, if you see as far back as history goes, the issue is for there to be the remission of sin, there had to be the shedding of blood. There had to be the shedding of blood all through history as far back as it goes. I'll just read this bottom part. That the blood is the life. I think I've already read this, but I'm going to read it again. That the blood is the life. The heart as the blood fountain is the very soul of every personality. That blood transfer is soul transfer. That blood sharing, human or divine human, secures an interunion of natures. And that a, nation, a union of the human nature with the divine is the highest ultimate attainment reached out after by the most primitive, as well as the most enlightened mind of humanity, is found at the heart of all mankind. Okay? Now, again, let's just turn the page, because I'm going to see if I can just boogie through some of this so I can catch up. Point C, I've already mentioned, but the terms define when you look at it. The Hebrew word, again, for covenant is the word berith. It's B apostrophe R-I-T-H, actually, in the Hebrew. I mean, as far as the transliteration. It literally means to cut where blood flows. 
The Greek word for covenant when it's used in the in dictionary is diathki, which literally means an unequal covenant where one does all the giving and the other does all the taking. Point D, these are the major reasons. The major reasons for cutting a covenant were always these three, protection, equality, and love and devotion. Point E, the method, like I've already kind of referred to, but the method of cutting the covenant, you can put it in seven little forms there. Number one is you decided upon the terms. Now this, let me just jump in there again with this little simple statement. I, I, I have to keep bringing this up because to me it's important uh, about young people. Please, those of you that are not married yet, <laughs> there needs to be long discussions. Oh, and I, I, used to, I used to have a four-page counseling questionnaire, uh, premarital counseling questionnaire. I couldn't find it. I, I was, uh, somebody asked me a while back, a couple that asked me about the possibility of marrying them, and I said, I, I don't marry anybody unless you go through some real, real critical, real big-time counseling stuff, mar marital counseling stuff. I used to take young couples through this questionnaire, and I got it from uh, the church I was part of in Oklahoma many, many years ago. This thing was so finite, by the time I would have couples walk into my office, you know, kissy, kissy, holding hands, gooey, gooey, easy, easy, kissy, kissy. And I mean, I'd start asking them questions just from this questionnaire. And sometimes it wasn't 15 to 20 minutes where they'd almost be in fisticuffs. They'd almost be pow, you know. I mean, boom, man, like upset. And I'd say, wait, 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 wait. I said, this is not, I'm not trying to find reasons for you not to get married. I said, what we're trying to do is discover every hidden thing we can beforehand so that there are as few surprises as possible. Because any of us who are married know that the moment you get married, it's like flipping a switch. Like something happens. I mean, you know, because, you know, knowing them on the outside is one thing, but when you start living with them, it's a whole other thing. You know, our wives, bless their hearts, find out all our stupidity and all, all the dumb things that we do. But the point is, is... You need to have long, long talks about things. You need to talk about everything under the sun and quit just, you know, today they get married, you know, because I like your perfume, I like your car. You know, I, li you know, you know, I like peanut butter, you like peanut butter, oh, we should get married. You know what I mean? They really get married upon some deep, deep issues, you know what I mean? Some things that are really vital to life. No, you've got to talk about kids, you've got to talk about money, you've got to talk about sex, you've got to talk about all manner of things and get nakedly honest. That's why you need to have a good pastor or a good somebody in a pastoral position that you can sit in front of that knows how to moderate and literally be right there and talk and not blush and talk about everything and talk about if there's been premarital things, what have you, what you need to deal with because of the soul ties. and that's it. But whatever it is, one, because the issue is, you see, we don't want divorces. You know, God forgive us in the body of Christ, and you all know this, this you already know the quote I'm going to give you, that we have the same divorce rate in the church as they do in the world. God forgive us. Like I said, when Julie and I, Julie and I, like, I think I said the first two hours, right? How all couples, when they go to get married, they want to have some really lovey-dovey scripture, you know, like we, you know, da 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 da, da. And the scripture that God gave Julie and I was iron sharpens iron. <laughs> And I jokingly say often, and there's been a lot of sparks between us when we first got married because Julie is a strong, strong personality and I'm no lightweight in some areas. And so at times we would, boom, come up, we'd come up against each other. But the thing is, Julie and I knew, I knew the call on her life and she knew a bit about the call on my life and we had an understanding. And I mean, we, I'm telling you the truth, we've had some 
Rouse, when we first got married, because we're trying to still figure each other out, <laughs> and I mean, you know, we shouldn't have had them like Rouse, but I'm just telling you, I don't, because, you know, I don't believe in lying. We had, I mean, there were times I would walk out of that house, and I mean, everything in my, my mind is saying, you know, I, that's it. I'm out of here, man. This woman can do what she wants. I'm out of here, Jack. That's it, you know, but I would drive one block and go, where am I going? <laughs> where am I going to go? Because I had this thing working in me. I am in covenant with her. I mean, I had an understanding to this stuff. I'm in covenant, and she's got an understanding of it too. And there's this thing, no matter how much we get in disagreement about something, there's something that's deeper than my hurt feelings. There's something deeper than her hurt feelings. It's this knowing, this understanding that we have. We're in covenant. We took hands in the name of God. That means something to me. It really, 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 really does. We took hands in the name of Almighty God, in the name of Jesus Christ. We were joined and became one. I refuse to break that sucker. That's like I said, so if we have problems, you see, we know in our mind, divorce isn't even an option. That's not even part of our vocabulary. No, if we have problems, every married couple goes through issues, but we know that issues are to be worked out. You just work them out. You just work them out. Because you have no other choice but to work them out. But you see, this uh, Julie used to get bugged down. I remember, and I think I'm repeating myself, when she got one time, she was upset, and she goes, I thought, you know, it was going to be happily ever after, and we were just going <laughs> to... And I, like I said, I said, sweetie, I said, we just, you have, it's not all rose gardens sometimes. We've got to work and stuff together. You know, you've got to have this, we have to work together. I'm not you. I mean, you know, the strangest thing about men and women are, women, all the time, they'll come up and say, he just doesn't understand me. And I go, well, duh. Men don't think like women think. Get that through your head. Of course he doesn't understand you. He's not a woman. Men will say, oh, she just doesn't understand me. I'll go, well, duh to you too. Women don't think like men think. You've got to catch that. Men try to communicate to women like men think and wonder why women don't understand. Women try to communicate to men like women think. Why aren't you gooey gooey? Men aren't led by their emotions. Men are led by their egos. Men aren't touchy-feely. Men are motivated by what they see. Women are motivated by what they feel. Men are headliners. Women are fine print, detail-oriented. A man, when she comes home, you know, this is the old thing. How, how was work, honey? The wife says, how was work, honey? He goes, fine. She goes, what did you do? Did everything go okay? Yeah. You know, she's wanting details, but he's giving headlines. Well, did you make any sales today? Yeah. Who to? Shell. You mean that thing you've been working on for months and months and months? Yeah. You're going to get a good commission? Probably. And it goes, and finally, it goes, and then the guy will wind up going, will you quit asking me? Just quit nagging me. You're nagging me. Quit nagging me. And see, she's not nagging. She's just a woman. <laughs> she wants details. And the way you minister to her is you give her details. But a woman has to understand, men aren't being necessarily uncaring. Men are headliners. Anyhow, you're different. Get used to it. <laughs> so you have to decide upon the terms. You have to understand. This is why men need to read books about women. Women need to read books about 
men and vice versa. But see, churches, all this stuff, if you can see all this works together. Number two, okay, real quickly, because I've only got a few minutes left. The method of cutting the covenant. You decide upon the terms. There's always an exchange of gifts, like I said, with his chieftain giving that brass-wound staff to Stanley, you know, which he wound up, he had no idea what worth that staff had because, you know, all the only thing that was worth to him was this goat because of his ulcers. And yet he finds out everywhere he went through Equatorial Africa, that staff, every tribe recognized it as being the staff of the strongest chieftain in all of Africa. And he had to just open the door to him to everything. There was a cup of wine. There were blessings and curses pronounced. There was always the sign or the witness of the covenant. Now that's what circumcision was. That's in marriage, like I said last week. The sign of the covenant between a man and woman is sex. Because ideally a woman was a virgin, ideally a man was, and when they came together for the first time of intimate communion and relationship, blood, her hymen broke, blood poured simultaneously over the man and woman. That's why sex is so sacred. That's why hell has done so much to demean it. But it's a covenant thing, you see. It's powerful. Then there's always a memorial or a covenant meal. Then there's an exchange of names. And this is what God said to Abraham, I am now the God of your, you're my God and I'm your, you know, I am your God and you are my man. The word covenant, and I've got to stop, the word covenant comes from con, which means together, and venil, which means I come. And it signifies an agreement, an association, or a meeting between two or more parties. Often there's a third party to mediate the agreement and to witness it when made. Rabbi Solomon Jarkis said, quote, it was a custom with those who entered into covenant with each other to take a heifer and cut it in two, and then the contracting parties passed between the pieces. Well, that's where we're going to have to stop for tonight. Right there. So draw a line right there. Father, we thank you again for your word, and I pray that you're opening this up to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.